The following message entitled, Grandma's Bible, Scapulars, and Other Things We Rely On, Part 6 of the series, A Righteousness of God, was given by Mark Altrogi on March 9, 2014 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. This is your first Sunday. Welcome. Glad to have you here this morning. And we have a guest reception. I guess Joe probably mentioned that. If you're able to come to our guest reception right afterwards today, it's in that room to my right, that through that door back there. Be some folks from the church and a pastor there, so I'd love it if you could come. This morning's message is entitled, Grandma's Bible, Scapulars, and Other Things We Rely On. I'll explain that in a minute. Grandma's Bible, Scapulars, and Other Things We Rely On. Let's pray first. Lord Jesus, thank You that You have given us Your Word. Lord, thank You that the God of the universe would speak to us and would show us and reveal to us the way of salvation. Lord, we pray that You would Speak to us through Your Word, by Your Spirit this morning, Lord. Just pray that You would change our lives for Your glory. We pray, Lord, that even this morning You would open blind eyes and that those who don't know You, Jesus, would come to know You and Your wonderful salvation. And Lord, that the rest of us would be greatly encouraged by Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was raised Roman Catholic. My parents taught me as a child that it was the one true church. And that Catholics had the tradition of the church that what I was taught was that beginning with the Apostle Peter, who according to the Catholic Church was the first Pope, who passed the tradition down from Pope to Pope, to Pope in unbroken succession till that very day. And not only did the Catholic Church have traditions and the Pope, but it had the Mass and it had communion in which they taught in the Catholic Church that the bread actually became the body, the very body of Jesus Christ. And... When I was in grade school, the nuns told us stories about communion. They told us about, I remember a story about a man who didn't believe it became the very body of Christ and he took communion and then he secretly spit the wafer out in his hand and took the wafer home and cut it with a knife and it began to bleed. Nuns told us these stories and I would be sitting there in second grade listening, and I believed it. I was taught that if you, you would go to heaven if you believed in God plus did good works and kept all the rules of the Catholic Church like going to Mass every Sunday because if you missed Mass, it was a mortal sin. 
And according to the Catholics, a mortal sin was a sin that killed all the grace in your soul. They viewed grace, I guess, as something that you stored up in your soul. And a mortal sin, if you missed Mass, unless somehow you were just absolutely unable to get there because of circumstances, if you missed Mass, it was a mortal sin. And if you died with a mortal sin on your soul without confessing your sins, without going to confession, you would go to hell. You had to go to confession, I remember at least once a year, but to get your sins forgiven, you had to go to confession and do your assigned penance to get your sins forgiven. And I can remember at times going to confession and there, there was a what was called the confessional which you would go in and then there was uh, usually a line of people waiting to get into the confessional. And we had one particular elderly priest who I think his hearing was a little bad. And so when I would confess a sin, especially when I was in college, I'd confess these sins and this priest would say, you did what? What did you do? How old are you? Do your parents know you did that? And then I would come out of the confessional and people would kind of avert their eyes and look away. I knew they had heard everything I did. But I, I believed I had to do that. And then I would shame, shamefacedly make my way to the back of the church and do my penance, which usually consisted of saying three Hail Marys, three Our Fathers, and three Glory Bees, or whatever the priest would, would give you. Um, you were, you were required to go to Mass on Holy Days of Observation, they were called, and not eat meat on Fridays during Lent. And I did all these things, and I relied all these things on, on these things, and for much of my life I assumed they would get me to heaven. But when I became a Christian, when Jesus saved me and rescued me around 1974, I began to discover as I began to read the Bible that much of what I had believed and counted on and relied on my whole life was wrong. Now I want to tell you, this is really hard to grapple with. When you have believed something your whole life, first, first you're saying, are you really sure this is all wrong? This won't get me to heaven? And then when you don't do what you have always been told to do, it doesn't feel right. You can battle feelings of guilt. What if I'm doing the wrong thing here? I can remember the first time I missed Mass on a Sunday. I had only been a believer for a short time. I was visiting a non-Christian friend who I'd been telling about Jesus. And Saturday night, I asked if there was a Catholic church nearby. And my friend said, well, there's one in the next town over, but there's a Baptist church just down the road. And he said he'd go with me to the Baptist church if I wanted him to, but he wouldn't go to the Catholic church. This produced a crisis in my soul. I was, I was in agony that night. Do I go to the Catholic church without my friend? Here's an opportunity this, this guy could hear about the Lord. Or do I go to the Baptist church and miss Mass and commit a mortal sin? I was in agony. Finally, I, I just thought, 
what would Jesus want me to do? Jesus, I was praying, what do you want me to do? And so I went to the Baptist church with my friend, but it's just so hard for me to not feel like I was doing something wrong. Really had to wrestle with it. Well, in Paul's day, we've been looking at the book of Romans, and in Paul's day, it was just as hard, if not harder, for Jews to hear the message that Paul brought because he challenged everything they'd always relied on. Everything they'd believed and relied on. So everywhere Paul preached, everywhere he went, he was opposed by the Jews. Why? Because of his Gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that he preached. That Jesus, God Himself, became a man, lived a sinless, perfect, holy life of flawless obedience, then died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, taking their sins upon Himself, bearing God's wrath in their place so that all who place their faith in Jesus will be saved. All who turn to Jesus in faith will be saved by what Jesus did, not by what we do. And when we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we become a part of God's covenant people. Whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Now, the, the Jews had always been God's covenant people. The Jews had God's written law. They had the Ten Commandments and the written Scriptures. They had the sign of the covenant. And so they would say, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. Hold on. We are God's covenant people. We're the chosen ones. We're the ones God delivered out of Egypt. We're the ones God gave the written law to. We have the special sign of the covenant circumcision. We are the ones who can boast. We have the law. That's what we rely on. We have circumcision. That's what we're relying on. We're set. We're the Jews. We are Jews. Now now you're coming with this new message that we should rely on Jesus and what He did? All our lives we've relied on something else. See, I can can see why it was a struggle for them given my struggle. When you believe something all your life and then you're taught something else, it's a struggle. And so they opposed Paul. Jews opposed Paul. And this was even a struggle for Christians, Jewish Christians, Jews who had become Christians. They had to wrestle with all this, just like I had to wrestle with it when I became a Christian. And so Paul says, here's... You oppose me because of what I preach. But in chapter 1 of Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of this new message that all, all the Jews are opposing. I'm not ashamed of it because, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Believes faith, not works, not keeping laws, not having circumcision to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now as I said, not only would Paul be opposed by Jews outside the church, but even Jews in the church were having a hard time working out the ramifications of all this. This is it's gut-wrenching when you find out everything you've always believed in and taken pride in and relied upon is wrong. 
Many Jews, even in addition to just having the law, many Jews believed that just because they had the written code, the written law, just because they had circumcision, they were, they were set even if they didn't obey at all. They just were relying on it. But now Paul says, you have believed in Jesus. But it's not so easy just to jettison everything you've always believed. We, we bring a lot of baggage into the kingdom, don't we? See, when, when Jesus saves us, the minute He saves us, all our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. But then He goes to work in us. And He begins to transform us. It's kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion. God begins to get down inside and root out things like pride, arrogance. He roots out things that we're relying on. Roots out sinful attitudes that we might have. And so God roots out anything that we would rely on And that's what he was doing with the Jewish believers. They had serious layers of onion, deep-rooted Jewish pride. And so Paul is exposing what they're relying on. So in our passage today, chapter 2, Romans 2, verse 17 and following, he begins to, and he has been, even in the previous week's messages, we've seen that Paul has been exposing things that they relied on. But he's going to continue that. So in verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So now he's probably targeting Jewish believers in the church, possibly those outside the church who would oppose his gospel, and he's dismantling Jewish pride. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew. Hey, I I am a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen ones. I'm one of God's favorites. I got it made. Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, when he says rely on the law, he means the Jews relied on the fact that simply because they had the law, they were fine with God. They felt superior. In fact, the Jews would boast in God. They were proud to be God's chosen people. They were placing their confidence in their heritage. And they were, they were pretty sure they were guaranteed heaven no matter how they lived. Now, when I was growing up Catholic, the church gave, I believe I was age 12, they gave every one of us a thing called a scapular. Anybody ever heard of a scapular before my title this morning? A few of you have. I'm going to show you a picture of it. Um, can we see the other picture? This, we'll come back to this one. This thing on the right is a scapular. You know the thing on the left is a rosary. But the scapular essentially was two holy cards that uh, were attached to one another by two cords and you put it on over your head so that one card hung in front and one card hung in the back. And you could wear this under your clothes, of course. And you were supposed to wear it 
every day. And the Catholic Church taught that if you wore this every day, then you were guaranteed to receive the last rites and have all your sins forgiven just before death so that you would go to heaven no matter how wicked you had lived. So let's see the other picture, Ray. Look, look at what this says. A sign of salvation, our Lady of Mount Carmel gave, I guess gave the first scapular to St. Simon Stock in 1251. And look what it says on the other one. Whosoever dies clothed in this scapular shall not suffer eternal fire. And this is the scapular promise from Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Now if you can't count on Our Lady of Mount Carmel, who can you count on? But look at this. I believe this. This, this says if you are wearing this, when you die, you will not go to hell, no matter what you do. And the nuns told stories. Okay, thanks, Ray. The nuns, the nun told a story, a true story, supposedly, about a wicked man. Here I am, picture 12-year-old me sitting in class. Wicked man, lived a sinful life, never went to Mass, broke that cardinal rule, committed all kinds of sins, and he was dying. But he always wore his scapular. He had his scapular. He always wore. He was in the woods, deep in the woods, in the cabin, dying. No one around. But God was going to keep His promise that if you wore a scapular, you're guaranteed that a priest will give you the last rites, which was you'd say you'd confess your sins. The priest would give you communion, and then you would go straight to heaven. Here's this guy dying in the woods, and lo and behold. A priest on a journey gets lost in the woods. And the priest sees a cabin, knocks on the door, comes in, finds this dying man who's wearing his scapular. The priest gives him last rites and he goes straight to heaven. They told us another story. Another story. A wicked man, but he always wore his scapular. This wicked man was in a boat with a friend of his. And the boat capsized. The friend drowns. But the scapular caught on the boat and saved the man's life. I believe it. I believe that. See, I, I, I counted on that. I counted on that stuff. Catholics relied on things like that. The Jews relied on their heritage. Maybe you are relying on your heritage. I don't know. Maybe some of you might be. Maybe some of you think, hey, I've gone to church my whole life, starting with Sunday school when I was a little kid. My grandma's big Bible sitting on my coffee table. Hey, if I'm not a Christian, nobody is. i got my grandma's Bible right there. And I got my scapular on. Some of you might just think, well, hey, I've, I've always gone to church. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm a Christian. When, I, when someone first asked me this question, I was not saved. Jesus hadn't rescued me yet. I went to a meeting and someone said, Mark, have you called on Jesus? Are you a Christian? I said, well, I, I guess so. I go to Mass every Sunday. He said, no, no, no. Have you ever personally turned to Jesus with all your heart and called upon Him and asked Him personally to forgive your sins and save you and come into your life? And I, I hadn't. 
I just was thinking, well, because I go to church every week, I guess I'm all right. See, the Jews relied on their heritage. They relied on the fact that they had the written law. They took pride in it. So Paul then, he goes on, he addresses this Jewish smugness. And in verse 17 he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Can can you hear the the sarcasm in Paul's voice? He's, He's piling it up. Oh, you call yourself a Jew. Oh, you've got the law. You're so proud to be chosen by God. Oh, you know God's will. You approve what is excellent. Because you're instructed from the law. And you are so sure that you're a guide to those poor, pathetic, blind Gentiles. Those pathetic, ignorant masses in darkness. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of children. Oh, you are so superior. Attitudes. He was now blasting in the Jews. But then Paul says, the very things the Jews were relying on proves they were hypocrites because they did the very things that they preached against. And so in verse 21, he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here is the ultimate irony. These teachers of children, these instructors of the foolish, didn't teach themselves. In other words, they didn't practice what they preached. They committed all the same sins the Gentiles committed. It was well known in the world at that time. They preached against stealing, yet they stole. They preached against adultery, yet they committed adultery. Besides that, Jesus had said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you are breaking the commandment against adultery. Remember what Jesus? Remember when Jesus uh, had a woman, the, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus? In John 8 it says, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test Him that they might have some charge to bring, bring against Him. Jesus bent down and wrote with His finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask Him, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more He bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on. Sin no more. What was Jesus writing in the dust? It doesn't say. But I've heard some say He was writing the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees who were standing there. 
Imagine standing there, you self-righteous Pharisee, and now you see Jesus writing down something you did. Oh, I think I'll just leave. <laughs> see, Paul, Paul is blasting them because they preached. They were taking such confidence. We got the law, but they were breaking it themselves. He said, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What does that mean? Well, a Jew would probably not go into a pagan temple. But, if someone else went into a pagan temple and stole a gold candlestick or a gold cup and brought it to a Jewish merchant, that Jewish merchant would have no qualms about selling that and making a profit off it. That's probably what Jesus was talking about according to some commentators. So they were robbing temples. They were taking what was stolen from a temple and making money from it. Now Paul delivers this devastating blow in verse 23. He says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Jews who boasted in the law broke it and brought shame on the name of God. And Paul says, as it is written, so he is probably thinking of Old Testament Scriptures like Ezekiel 36.22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. There is nothing that brings more dishonor to the name of God than hypocrisy. People can see through hypocrisy so easily. If we say we're Christians and then we rip our company off by taking a break every time the boss leaves, we bring shame on the name of Jesus. If we say we're Christians and then we slander people on Facebook, we bring shame on Jesus' name. I have a friend, and this friend of mine claims to be an atheist. And I, I, I talk to him every once in a while, and he says, he says, Mark, my boss claims to be a Christian. And he talks about his church, and he even has special retreats for the Christian employees. But this man has cheated me Numerous times, he has taken away my business and given it to his Christian friends who he has employed. He has, he has made the work environment for non-Christians so miserable that he's trying to get us to quit so he can hire people from his church. What shame, if that man is a Christian, but he claims to be, what shame that brings to the name of Jesus. That's what the Jews were doing. They said, we've got God's law. We're teachers. We want to teach you what to do. Do as we say, not as we do. You know, this, this verse is just so challenging to me. I just think, I really want to be careful that I, I don't bring shame on the name of Jesus. I, I would be willing to bet that there are people who know you're a Christian and are watching your life and you maybe are not aware of it. 
Or maybe you have relatives and they know you're a Christian and they watch how you act at Thanksgiving and Christmas at family gatherings. Maybe people at where you work know you're a Christian and they're watching you. I've had, I've, I've had people at times in town... Um, I could be at the meat counter in a grocery store. This happened to me once. I was, I was buying some meat at a deli and someone says, oh, you're the pastor of that church up there by the hospital, aren't you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am. And how, How'd you know? Oh, I know you are. I know who you are. I think, oh, great. I said, well, I'm, I think I've, well, I'm glad I didn't curse about the meat or something. <laughs> People are watching us. Our children are watching us. Our teenagers are watching us. Teenagers are experts at smelling hypocrisy. Trust me, I had five of them. First Peter 2.12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Or as the NIV says, live such good lives among the pagans so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Paul says the Jews were relying on their heritage. They boasted in the law. They were so confident they would escape judgment simply because they had the law even though they didn't do it, didn't keep it all. And so in reality, they were dishonoring God and unbelievers blaspheming God because of them. So the Bible tells us, if we rely on anything but Jesus Christ, if we rely on anything but Jesus Christ and and the redemption He has worked for us, we will be condemned forever in hell. So I I really want to challenge if, if, if any of you are relying on anything. Maybe you're relying on your religious heritage. Maybe you're relying on the fact that you think you've lived a good enough life to get to heaven. Maybe you're relying on the fact that you always went to religious classes, whatever. If you rely on anything but Jesus Christ, you will not get to heaven at all. and You will be punished forever in hell. This is serious, what we're talking about. Now, the Jews also relied on circumcision. The Jews were not only sure that the law would get them in, whether they obeyed it or not, they just thought that the sign of circumcision would exempt them from judgment. And so, in verse 25, Paul says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I'll try to explain this in a minute. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision real circumcision, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, 
And circumcision, true circumcision, is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from man, but from God. So essentially what Paul is saying is that circumcision was of value if they obeyed the law. It was a reminder of God's covenant with His people. I mean, that could be a good thing to remind them, hey, you belong to God. Just like my wedding ring is a reminder of the vows I took when I got married. It's a, it's, it's a good thing if I keep those vows. And so he says, yeah, it's, circumcision is indeed of value. It's a reminder of the covenant. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, if you break the law, then what good is an outward sign? What good would my wedding ring be if I was unfaithful to the vows I took? I couldn't just be say, hey, I got this ring. What good would it be to wear a Steeler jersey than root for the Patriots? <laughs> what good would it be to wave an American flag and then cheat on your taxes? See, the outward sign is nothing without a matching life. And so in verse 26, so he says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. What Paul is saying is, hypothetically, hypothetically, if there were an uncircumcised Gentile who could somehow keep all God's law, now there isn't one, but hypothetically, if there was an uncircumcised Gentile who kept God's law, he would condemn you who have the sign of circumcision and don't keep God's law. Now Paul says, here's what makes a true Jew. Or what he means, a true child of God. Or a true covenant member of God's covenant. He says, this is what a true child of God is. A true covenant child of God, a true Jew, is one inwardly. Something has to happen on the inside. There has been an inner work of God. An inner change. Remember how Jesus, Jesus said about the Pharisees. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, God looks on the heart. He doesn't just look on the outward signs. And so, God has to change our hearts to make us a true member of His covenant people. Or a true Jew. And so Paul says circumcision is a matter of the heart. Now circumcision was a cutting away of what was unclean. So when Paul says circumcision is a matter of the heart, it means that when Jesus comes into our lives, He cuts off that which is unclean. He washes our sins away by His blood. He does a work in our hearts. He breaks the enslaving power of sin over us. And He changes us from the inside out. You, you don't become a Christian by putting on a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus. It doesn't mean you're a Christian. We need to be changed from the inside out. 
It doesn't happen to us by us making resolutions and going to confession and doing things. It's a work of the heart by God. Even the Old Testament circumcision was intended to be primarily inward because God said in Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah. Now Paul tells us how this inner work of God happens. Paul says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. In other words, not the letter of the law. Your heart won't get circumcised by trying to keep the law. Your heart won't get circumcised by trying to do good. We do good as a result of our hearts being circumcised. But our hearts are changed and inner work occurs by the Spirit. And so in Ezekiel 36.25-27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. See, that's that's what it means when Jesus saves us. He gives us new hearts. He puts His Spirit in us who causes us and motivates us and stirs us and leads us to keep God's law. Has God given you a new heart? Has God changed you on the inside? If not, then you have no hope of conquering sin and no hope of going to heaven apart from God changing you. But God is eager to give you a new heart. If you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, my my life, I, I, my life is a mess, or I, I just can't seem to do this. I've tried to do this Christian life. I can't do it. Well, you'll never get there by trying to do these things. You need God to give you a new heart first, and He's so willing. If you would just say, Jesus, help, change me. I turn to You. I'm looking to You in faith. Be my Savior. He will. He's eager to give you His Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, then God has put His Spirit in you to help you conquer sin. To help you live a life pleasing to Jesus. To stir you and motivate you and help you to do good things. Not to get to heaven, but because He's already forgiven your sins. I tell you what, that alone would be something to just worship God for for several days on end. That He has put His Spirit in us and changed our hearts. In addition to all the other wonderful things He's done. Now Paul makes this a final point to undermine the confidence Jews had in outer things. He says, what's the source of your praise? 
He says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, the, je- the zealous Jews, they love the praise of men. As Jesus said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi or teacher by others. See, they love the praise of men. God says, when you're truly circumcised in your heart, you don't live for the praise of men. You live to please God. He says His praise is not from man, but from God. One commentator says, a Jew who relies on the law and circumcision, Paul was saying, God knows your heart. And this commentator said, if he was honest, he would realize that his own heart, like those of his ancestors, was after all truly uncircumcised. So the question this morning is, has God done a work in your heart? If God has done a work in your heart, you have hope. You have something to glory in. You, have, you, you will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. As you follow Jesus, you will sense God's approval. You will sense God's love. Your praise will come from God. And it won't be because of anything you're doing. It'll be because of what God is doing. In other words, has God changed your heart? And what do you rely on? And what will you rely on on Judgment Day? Will you rely on your heritage? I hope none of you are relying on a scapular. Will you you rely on, on your religious upbringing or only in what Jesus Christ did? He lived His life for you. He died His death for you. He rose from the dead for you. Will you rely on Him? Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. The band can come up. Lord Jesus, thank You for all You've done for us. Help us every day from morning to night to rely on what You have done. That we are accepted by God every minute of every day, not because of what we do, but because of what You did. And even when we fail, we are not rejected because of our failures, because Jesus, You paid for those. So Lord, we want to rely on You. Make us a people who relies on You and rejoices in all You've done for us 24 hours a day. And we thank You, Lord. In Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.